Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by Max Eden. Max is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, an incredibly thoughtful and eloquent right of center writer and thinker when it comes to education related issues. We want to go deep with Max when it comes to the Florida model of education reform and really just generally speaking what the American right can and should be doing when it comes to both lower and higher education policy. But before then, we have to just talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, which has been the news over the past three, four or five days or so about the potentially looming indictment from Alvin Bragg, who is a rogue Soros funded prosecutor in New York City. He is among the handful of most visible Soros funded prosecutors, whether it's Los Angeles, St. Louis, Chicago. There are a number of these so-called progressive prosecutors out there who oftentimes try to do the opposite of what you should do when it comes to incarceration, when it comes to law enforcement. There's a whole lot to say about kind of the utterly nefarious and terrible spread the pervasive metastasis of Soros funded prosecutors in America. In fact, obviously, this got so bad that last summer in no less a leftist bastion than San Francisco, another Soros funded prosecutor, Chesa Boudin, was actually recalled, if you recall, no pun intended there. But that is the kind of person that we are dealing with when it comes to Alvin Bragg. And it seems like Alvin Bragg is set potentially any day and perhaps even any hour at this juncture to issue an indictment for former President Donald Trump when it comes to his so-called hush money payment that Michael Cohen, his former lawyer and fixer who has since turned on Trump, gave to a porn star by the name of Stormy Daniels. I mean, the number of kind of sordid actors involved in this is really, <laughs> it really is just so tabloidy. I mean, Michael Cohen himself is an absolute sleazebag. Stormy Daniels, by definition, is a porn star. Do you remember who Stormy Daniels' former lawyer was? Yeah, Michael Avenatti, the same guy who is currently behind bars. So the number of just sheer kind of sordid actors involved in this horrific saga, especially when you include the Soros-funded prosecutor himself, Alvin Bragg here, is really just mind-boggling. Now, when it comes to the actual alleged violation, if I understand the alleged violation correctly, it is like a misallocation of business funds charge. And then simultaneously, he is purporting to bring a federal charge, which he cannot actually technically do, by the way, as a New York County, New York district attorney. It's not like he can actually bring federal charges. You would need a U.S. attorney for that. But nonetheless, there is kind of a floating kind of uh, a potential federal charge involving campaign finance here because this happened in the allegedly in the context of the 2016 election. By the way, in order for to possibly somehow prove that in federal court, you would have to prove 
that Trump made this payment solely for purposes of benefiting his 2016 presidential campaign and that it had nothing to do with kind of just shielding his wife or his children or anything like that, which is almost impossible from an evidentiary threshold to prove in court. But all of that is kind of missing the forest for the trees here, which is that this is obviously and facially a ludicrous and and frivolous attempt to get Trump, who the left for so many years now has been trying to get on any number of grounds. Trump fends off seemingly interminable lawsuits at any given time. I'm certainly not saying that not all of them are all his fault, but this one in particular is outrageous and ludicrous. It kind of, you know, my first thought when I heard about this was it kind of smacks of the feds finally getting Al Capone of all people on tax evasion. Um, except in that case, Al Capone actually was guilty of tax evasion. And it seems to, to me like Trump is certainly not guilty of the alleged crime that he is probably going to be indicted with here from Alvin Bragg. So uh, from a substantive perspective, this indictment is utterly ludicrous. On the politics of what's going on here, I want to just very briefly comment on that as well. It is highly revealing to me that Trump world's reaction to the news of this potentially looming indictment actually had very little to do with Alvin Bragg, the prosecutor himself, and had a lot to do with the governor of the state wherein Donald Trump currently resides, Florida, that being Governor Ron DeSantis. So the, the kind of MAGA Inc. Trump world inner circle talking points in the immediate aftermath of the news of this indictment coming down was, oh, well, what will Ron DeSantis do? Will he refuse to extradite Trump? Because again, this is a state crime in a different state jurisdiction. And this was really the talking point for a few days was, oh, what is DeSantis going to do? What can he do? Will he man up? Will he have the balls to stop this extradition? So there are numerous reasons why this is just utterly vapid and stupid, frankly, beyond belief. The first and most obvious reason is that Donald Trump himself openly talked about surrendering himself. He openly said that he wanted that he would gladly fly up to New York and deal with the indictment and enter charges in person. And the reason for that is obvious. The reason for that is that Trump is smart enough to know that he is at his best. He is in his most natural element, at least these days, when he plays the role of victim, when he plays the role of martyr. It allows him to kind of easily gin up the passions of his base. That is his most natural element. He is at his politically highest peak when he is playing the role of victim and martyr. I actually said the exact same thing, by the way, after the Mar-a-Lago raid from the feds last August, which was also, I thought, patently insane on the merits. But I thought would so obviously help Trump politically that it seemed to me like Merrick Garland or at least his underlings of the DOJ, who should have and probably did easily foresee that rally around the flag effect. They probably did that for that reason. They they were probably trying to I don't think it's conspiratorial to say they were probably trying to bolster his 2024 presidential nomination odds with that raid. Potentially something similar going on here. So take it back to the situation here. Trump has openly said he will fly to New York. He will surrender himself. He's going to do this in person. And then out of the other side of the MAGA Inc. world's mouth, they're saying, what will DeSantis do? Well, what can he possibly do if, if the president is talking about openly and gladly surrendering himself? But it's actually even more than that. So this is actually a clause that the Constitution very clearly speaks on. So Article 4, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution reads, quote, A person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime who shall flee from justice and be found in another state shall on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled be delivered up. So two things here. One is 
This clause is only implicated, meaning, you know, the state can only do something or potentially do something when someone, quote, flees from justice, when you are a fugitive from the law. But again, that's not what Trump is doing here. He's talking about openly surrendering himself to Alvin Bragg. He has said it explicitly. Second, later on in the, in the provision that I just read, quote, shall on demand of the executive authority from which he fled be delivered up. So the word shall has a very specific legal meaning. I mean, once upon a time, conservatives unanimously agreed on this because the word shall, oh, by the way, happens to appear in another provision that conservatives, including myself, like a lot, the Second Amendment. So that's the whole, quote, shall not be infringed thing. Shall means shall. There is no discretion involved here. And if you think back to the Constitution's framing, you know, this entire notion of states not being able to kind of put a full stop and to have any discretion when it comes to preventing a different state from being able to summon a potential criminal to answer for his alleged crimes. This is one of the conditions upon which these states assented to the ratification of the federal government in the first place, going back to kind of the founding of the country in the 1780s and 1790s. So this is all very straightforward stuff. It was also that that sentiment that there's no discretion involved here was really also reaffirmed by a, a 1987 Supreme Court case called Puerto Rico versus Brandstad. If the legal nerds want to go ahead and look that up. So this idea that Ron DeSantis can do something or, or, or should do something, um, it's constitutionally stupid and it's substantively stupid because the president of the United States or the former president, I should say, is talking about openly surrendering himself. So that is what I have to say on that. Again, these Alvin Bragg indictments, if it comes, is garbage. It is garbage on the merits. But what is arguably even more garbage is the fact that many in kind of the MAGA Inc. world kind of rallied around this patently ludicrous and frivolous talking point that Ron DeSantis should, quote unquote, do something. That is stupid. And the people saying it should, frankly, know better. Let's take it to a quick commercial break. We will be right back with Max Eden. We are going to go deep in education policy. Stay with us. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. It's a great thrill to bring on a dear personal friend. That is Max Eden. He is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So Max, this is long overdue, I feel. Thanks so much for joining us this week. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So the reason I really want to bring you on right now is I, I wrote a column a few weeks ago basically arguing that children and parents are the future of the Republican Party in America, really are kind of the future of the conservative movement to the extent that term is no longer uh, or is not an oxymoron anymore in America. And if you think about kind of the seminal role that parents and children, parental rights I think can and should and indeed must play for the future of the American right. There's no more foundational issue by definition than education. And this is your bread and butter issue. You've written prolifically on this issue. You testify in state legislatures on this issue. You write some wonderful pieces for Newsweek on this issue. So let's just kind of dive right in and let's explore kind of, I guess, the the viability of, of education as kind of a possible cornerstone of the American right. And I'm biased because I live here in Florida, but you have written a lot of kind of Florida-centric, Florida-themed uh, pieces for us in Newsweek there. So before we kind of dive in on, on the specifics, why don't you kind of just kind of paint kind of a 35,000-foot altitude view of sorts? Why do you view what's happening here in Florida as a possible model, or to use our governor's language, a possible blueprint that other states can follow when it comes to education in particular? Yeah, I would say that what's been happening in Florida is the first instance we've seen in decades of a healthy politicization of education, right? For for several decades, most of the education debates were very policy oriented. They were kind of wonky. They were about standards, the common core, charter school regulations, testing and accountability. But after the collapse of kind of that bipartisan technocratic reform agenda, the cottage industry that had built up around it went whole hog for anti-racism, for cultural responsive education, for kind of, you know, their diagnosis was not that their ideas were suboptimal, but that schools were actually not only inefficient, but systemically racist. And I think for a couple of years, it took it took a couple of years for the Republican Party in general to start catching on to the fact that this had happened at all. And then once they did, the question was, well, you know, what do you actually do about it? And Florida was the first state to say, this has gone too far. The schools are beginning to no longer transmit the values of one generation to the next, but actually act actively transform or attempt to transform the values of the next generation. And as stewards of public education, as stewards of the children, we will not allow this to happen. Uh, and so we kind of saw that reaction, I think most notably um, and kind of most funnily through the Parental Rights and Education Act, right, which really said very little that would have been controversial up until five years ago, maybe <laughs> two years ago, <laughs> one year ago, uh, which was that there should not be proactive discussion about gender identity or sexual orientation in public education. There wasn't when we were kids, Josh. There wasn't uh, when most of Gen Z were kids. Uh, this is a kind of a, a novel concept of human nature that is being taken and run with by teachers within the classroom and Florida and and it's in some cases it is kind of professional groups that are pushing it in some cases individual teachers that are picking it up and running with it uh, but in the case of Florida Florida was the first state to say and many states still haven't followed that this is fundamentally inappropriate for young children again if you see the foot being put down that we will not allow schools to fundamentally change their values and fundamentally try to affect the way the children think about themselves and their souls 
without at least a robust public debate. Right. So the parental rights and education bill, which the critics disingenuously lambasted as the so-called don't say gay bill, notwithstanding the fact that if I recall correctly, the word gay literally does not appear in the statutory language. Um, and the, you know, the, the Florida legislature is currently looking at expanding that to kind of go further. I think, I think Max, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they're going to take it from K through six to either K through eight or K through 12. I can't remember exactly what the what the yeah, cutoff I is think from K through three through K through eight, K through K through three to K through eight. Right. Uh, excuse me. And, you know, they're also looking at this current legislative session at, 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 um, at banning the biologically incorrect use of, of pronouns from teachers or at least kind of absent affirmative kind of parental consent of that nature there. So there's all sorts of stuff that Florida is doing. But, you know, Max, to your point, <laughs> I agree with you. I mean, I went to public school. OK, I, I was K through 12 public school and None of this crap was happening, at least where I was growing up. And I think of it personally from a different perspective as well. So I actually come from a lineage of teachers. So my mother just retired last June after serving 20 to 25 years as a New York State public school teacher. Her mother, my grandmother, who is still alive, was a teacher. And my great grandmother, who I actually never met, was also a teacher. And this stuff would just be anathema to them. And I think really this is another issue that you've that you've written a little bit on. And maybe I'll get you to comment on this. I think there's just been a shift in kind of the vocational mission of what K through 12 instructors, educators are supposed to do. And maybe there's the generational divide is between really my parents, our parents generation and the current crop of graduates from, you know, people who are getting their master's in education. I, I know you've written on this a little bit, but I look at the divide between my mother, who's in her early 60s and her 20, 30 something colleagues. And there's just a fundamental difference there, I think, isn't there between what my mother was trained to do versus what this younger crop is trained to do. Yeah. And I think you, the, the last part of what you said hit the nail on the head, right? It's what they're trained to do. <laughs> um, at some point in kind of the mid to late nineties, you really saw schools of education go from multiculturalism to culturally responsive, culturally relevant education, which was the kind of analog of going from, you know, liberal democratic civil rights era norms to the anti-civil rights era or the anti-civil rights regime push that is critical race theory, right? And there's a kind of a one-to-one a -one intellectual lineage connection between critical race theory and what they call culturally responsive education. Uh, most of education school is not about teaching teachers how to teach, right? There's actually, they actually do uh, the opposite of that in many cases by stigmatizing phonics instruction, which is one of the very few things that we know works. Uh, and yet you will see education professors not only not teach that, but actively say this is a conservative thing. This is uh, something that doesn't actually engage kids imagination. This is something you don't do. Rather, what you do is you try to use education to alleviate injustice, to alleviate oppression, to raise critical consciousness within the students. And for the past couple of decades, this is what teachers have been told uh, kind of as a precondition to enter the classroom. Right. Um, and when we were kids was kind of the beginning of the younger teachers being taught this, but there was still a, a solid professional bulwark against it because teachers knew that if they stepped over their skis, the older teachers would you know, maybe have a word with them. The parents would certainly have a word with them and they would not want to have a parent call up the principal and be on the other side of a parent teacher principal conversation explaining why they have kind of gone above and beyond what is understood to be their professional duties. Now that kind of changed gradually and then very suddenly, of course, during the George Floyd era, where all of a sudden there was a kind of a, a snap in, to borrow their term, a snap in collective consciousness, 
where the problem wasn't that you were going out of line by embracing culturally responsive education actively, by embracing anti-racism, by sending kind of racially charged or gender identity charged messages to your children. The message started to be that you are going out of line by not doing that. <laughs> Uh, and that became more of a cultural norm for, for a good few years before you saw the backlash. Uh, I hate to say backlash. I shouldn't say that before you saw uh, state legislators putting their foot down properly uh, to say that we don't want public schools to convey these messages. Right? You saw the that in Florida with the Stop Woke Act. You saw that with critical race theory bans in a variety of other states. And that was fundamentally an attempt to reassert kind of the former professional norm of public education, which is that it teachers are stewards, are, are government employees who are fundamentally stewards of children acting in loco parentis. Um, and I think one, I mean, one thing that we, I've often heard is exactly what you're saying about this generational divide of the younger teachers being kind of the, the woker ones, the older teachers being somewhat tired. Uh, and frankly, a lot of the times too intimidated to speak up against it and kids getting a kind of a, a very different experience going through the public education system, depending on the age of their teacher. Yeah, I don't want to get too off topic here, but this whole notion of this generational divide in terms of kind of the vocational mission of institutions of education, you know, it does remind me to the recent outrageous incident out at Stanford Law School. So you have this so-called DEI dean, uh, Tyrion Steinbach, who was there purporting to espouse free speech values, but then simultaneously saying on the other side of her mouth that she was that she was also glad that these students there might be able to use these skills or whatever it is that they are purportedly acquiring in Stanford Law School these days to then challenge the reigning paradigm of free speech, which, you know, again, kind of indicates that there has just been a fundamental shift in terms of kind of from training people to engage in legal and logical reasoning to now kind of just training kind of a, a specifically kind of partisan hue of left wing social justice activists. But anyway, a lot of what you said there just kind of brought me back to that. But let's kind of bring it back now to K through 12. So your most recent piece for us in Newsweek, I thought was absolutely fascinating. So listeners can go ahead and check it out. This piece was it's entitled uh, The Transparent Core of Gender Identity in Schools. And you really shine, I think, a powerful spotlight on what, from my perspective, is one of the just absolutely most profoundly nefarious elements of what has uh, percolated throughout K through 12 education, which is effectively teachers and other activists trying to trans the kids outside of the parents purview. And I don't think I'm overstating that, right? I mean, critics would say that they're accommodating kids who are trans or accommodating, you know, the sense of gender dysphoria that students have. Uh, but I wouldn't say that you are overstating the case in that regard. No. So walk us through this then. I mean, I mean, how pervasive is this? You said a report here from Parents Defending Education in your piece that nearly 6,000 schools have these policies on the books. So what exactly is so-called social transition and what can and what are we doing to push back against it? Because it just seems to me so dystopian, frankly. No, absolutely. I think I'd, I'd like to start off by kind of repeating what I said in the lead, because I think if uh, if your listeners take one thing out of this conversation, I want it to be that, you know, this is the core of the question about how schools accommodate transgender kids. Right. The public argument was over bathrooms and locker rooms for several years that transitioned, so to speak, to being about sports. But the real question is how adults in the school treat students and how students can expect to be treated. Uh, by adults and teachers and whether or not the school will instantly accommodate trans identification and actually thereby push it further upon kids or whether they'll act kind of in loco parentis hand in glove with the parents and what we have seen behind the scenes grow dramatically and you know the parents defending education 
uh, survey was ex- very self-consciously not exhaustive. They were able to actively identify 6,000 school districts or 6,000 schools. That doesn't mean that there aren't 10,000 school districts in which this is policy because many school districts have it without uh, without actually writing it down in, in print and, and they didn't search every single school district in America to get it. What they looked for was what's called gender support plans, right? And these were pushed by the Obama administration's offices for civil rights, by teachers' unions, by LGBTQ groups like the Human Rights Campaign, or in states, various offshoots of an organization called Equality in Florida. In Florida, it was called Equality Florida. And the idea is if a student approaches the school and says, I identify as a girl, I identify as a boy, I identify outside of my sex, then the school will, will accommodate that. But most importantly, will ask the student whether or not the parent should be informed. And if the student says, no, I don't want my parents to know, the school honors that. And then they honor that to the point that when they talk to the parents, when a teacher talks to the parents, the teacher will call the student by his actual name and his natural pronouns, even as the student, the teacher calls a student by a different name and different pronouns and enforces that upon other students who might not necessarily kind of agreed the metaphysical proposition at its core there. And, you know, the reason why I, I I personally don't object to your characterization of this as trancing the kids, right, is that this is not a neutral act. Right. This is something that has been kind of stated very eloquently by Hillary Cass, who led the investigation into the Tavistock Gender Clinic, uh, which was an absolutely appalling case of kind of medical recklessness in in England, when it comes to giving students and giving children puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones with really minimal upfront due diligence, she noted that social affirmation, which is to say calling a student by his or her preferred pronouns or an alternative name, is an act that actually can exacerbate, increase the likelihood of persistence of gender dysphoria. Um, and it, it only makes sense, right? If, if there's part of you that considers yourself to be a, a girl and you're, you're, actually, you're biologically a boy, part of you considers yourself to be a girl, And then everybody starts agreeing with that. Everybody starts calling you Jenny uh, and referring to you as her. That's going to affect you. That's actually going to reinforce what might have otherwise been a very passing, fleeting uh, sense that you have had, probably a sense that's been kind of memed into you by a lot of social media that you've consumed. And it makes it much more likely that you will seek to further affirm that kind of sense through medical means, through puberty blockers, through cross-sex hormones, which are all experimental treatments that have uh, a lot more clearly documented negative side effects than clearly documented medical benefits. I mean, it seems to me kind of trying to take kind of like a longer historical view here that what the current manifestation of the activist left in America is trying to do, which is not exactly a new phenomenon. I mean, there's been various kind of iterations of this over the past century or so is just trying to break down the nuclear family, frankly. I mean, at its core, that's what they're trying to do. They are trying to kind of sever the closeness and the intensity, you might say, even of kind of the parent-child tie and ultimately trying to kind of supplant biological parents with, you know, activist wards of the state. Is that basically what's going on here? I believe so. I mean, if you listen to their argument about it and you think it through, then it's it's hard to escape kind of the premise that you've offered, right? I mean, what is the argument for not telling parents that their child is desires to be or is being addressed by an alternative pronoun or alternative name? The argument is that that will put the child in danger, right? Right. <laughs> um, and the assumption there, and I'm, you know, for what it's worth, I'm sure there are some families, a few, where it might, right? But in those cases, you can always use social services. You can always 
report abuse to child protective services. But the general assumption that a parent would not continue to love a child if this issue were to present to the point where the parents would actually form a threat to the child, that's a profound claim. And that speaks to a really profound distrust in the family as a unit in the parent-child relationship. Um, and it's something that it, it only takes a moment of reflection to kind of be, be horrified by the, the scope to which it assumes that the nuclear family uh, is, if not inherently, then certainly at the risk of a drop of the hat of being actively harmful to the development of a child. Yeah, I mean, there's also just the basic reality that children are simply not mentally and biologically equipped to make these sort of decisions that these activists seem to think that they are permitting when, when they indulge their their various uh, feelings, delusions, whatever you want to call them. I mean, you know, the, the human brain obviously just, you know, continues to develop until you are into your 20s, if I'm not mistaken there. So, you know, the notion that we should be allowing these activists, teachers, whatever we want to call them in the K through 12 setting here to do these actions rather than try to steer children in kind of a healthier direction to protect them. I mean, it, it, it just has everything absolutely backwards. Um, I find that absolutely maddening. I was very happy you wrote, you wrote this recent article for us. Um, Max, let's take it to a quick commercial break here. But when we come back on the other side, I want to pick up on some of the other kind of Florida related topics and kind of the ways that uh, our state here is leading the way. So we're going to take a quick break. We're with Max Eden of the American Enterprise Institute. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So, Max, another issue that you've written on for Newsweek and another kind of issue that gained a lot of attention here from Florida was the recent fight that Governor DeSantis picked with the College Board, which is the organization that puts out the SAT, the PSAT, and of course, all the various AP exams as well. So Florida picked a big fight with the College Board when it comes to AP African American Studies, which is a fairly new course, if, if I'm not mistaken there. Walk us through that fight. I mean, you know, all the predictable kind of outcries were there, the New York Times, MSNBC crowd, you know, calling DeSantis and Florida a bunch of rubes and redneck racists for trying to write out black history. A lot of this rhetoric we've heard over the past few years, but this was kind of, I think, somewhat of its apex. And interestingly, it seems like, from my perspective, at least, and I think you would agree with this, it seemed like Florida actually ended up winning this fight with the college board. So why don't you walk us through that fight and why I think from your perspective, it was an important fight to pick and frankly, an important fight to win. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it was you know brave of DeSantis to, to pick it in the first place because the, the headlines were guaranteed, right? <laughs> the headlines, if he's trying to erase black history, he's trying to erase black voices. He is trying to you know make it so that African-American children don't see themselves reflected in the curriculum. He's trying to erase the legacy of the civil rights movement. You know, he and his Department of Education knew that they were going to wade into that media territory before they picked the fight. So why did they pick it? Well, we 
are kind of on the heels of a couple of years of public debate argumentation over critical race theory in public education, right? And critical race theory is an explicitly kind of uh, a racialization of Marxist theory that intends to kind of overturn traditional conceptions of America, it wants to kind of do with the idea of kind of bourgeois liberal democracy equated to white supremacy and then subvert it from within. And so most of the time when we are talking about critical race theory in public education, we're talking about kind of how it's filtered through diversity, equity and inclusion trainings uh, or how it's filtered through kind of more subtle messages that children are being sent. But the College Board's AP African-American History course kind of had three components. It had the, the pre-slavery and slavery component, the civil rights component, and both of those components were well done in the first instance. But then just about the last quarter of the class was literally critical race theory. <laughs> um, it was literally just, uh, they, they assigned Kimberly Crenshaw, they assigned Robin Hill, they assigned all of these kind of far left, for the most part, African-American academics who have an extremely ideological take that is deeply contested and in the view of, I think, many Americans upon expectation, upon inspection, very destructive. And what DeSantis said somewhat famously is, you know, what does black queer studies really have to do with African-American history? Uh, and that's a good question. And it's not the kind of question that would make sense, I think, to the average African-American person on the street. They would say it's not actually integral to their experience. It is, however, very integral to this ideological movement that wants to hijack schools for a racialist, explicitly political end. And the college board, as you, as you put it, this is a new course, right? It had not yet been implemented. Uh, it was being trialed in a bunch of districts and a bunch of states. And uh, this is what the College Board as a nonprofit entity in cahoots with kind of left-wing professors thought was appropriate. And the DeSantis Department of Education said, no, this is not appropriate. It's not appropriate to teach intersectionality to students. It's not appropriate to teach critical race theory to students. It's not appropriate to teach black queer studies to students without any counterweight. This is where you actually step beyond education into indoctrination. So this concern was raised, and then shortly after this concern was raised, both privately and publicly, the AP, the College Board, came out with a new set of standards, which, again, the first two-thirds, three-quarters were as good as before, but the last quarter no longer focused on academic ideology. It focused on things like the rise of the African-American middle class, on things like African-American political achievement showing both sides of the equation, on things like African-American achievement in math and science uh, and other, on other walks of life kind of change to the type of history that I think the American parents, whether they be black or white, do want taught in schools. Um, and so by act kind of a, the, as we were talking about earlier, uh, by you know, politicizing education, by putting his foot down and insisting kind of on traditional instruction, DeSantis scored a victory not only for the kids in Florida, but for kids all across the country. You know, critical race theory will not be taught explicitly in an AP course across America because the DeSantis folks caught it and they were willing to stand up and say, no, this this goes over the edge and this is inappropriate. And just to clarify, the causation really is that simple because the College Board, if I'm not mistaken, kind of after the fact was like, oh, we didn't capitulate to Florida. We were already kind of reviewing this because, like you said, the course was on trial. It hadn't been kind of rolled out yet. But but you do think that it really is that simple, that they that they basically just capitulated to DeSantis in Florida. Yeah, I mean, it, it is important to note, as you just noted, that they will they will say no to that. They will say this is all the result of students and teacher feedback and the, the CRT texts were too complicated and they didn't really work in class. But they hadn't yet reached that portion of the instruction before they took those those pieces out. 
Um, I think that, and and the state of Florida, the Florida Department of Education released documents showing a back and forth that they kind of threw a flag at this stuff, which the APC uh, seems to have internalized and seem to have done it. So from the outside, without actually, you know, litigation to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, I think it's just the, the default assumption that this was a DeSantis thing and not an internal dialogue shift. One of the hilarious parts of this saga, if I recall, was that Governor Pritzker in Illinois, who much like Governor Newsom in, in California is trying to kind of paint himself as kind of, um, you know, the opposite of Ron DeSantis for his own possible future presidential aspirations. If I remember correctly, Governor Pritzker then threatened the college board in kind and said, if you change this, then we're not going to teach the watered down, denuded version in Illinois that writes out black queer studies. Has, has there been an update on that? I mean, has Illinois said whether they're going to do it? Uh, no, I mean, that was one of those things that I think was a, a, a news cycle and then hope that everybody would right. Us, right? I mean, there, there there certainly was no countervailing, oh, my God, Illinois is not going to teach black history. Right? right. I mean, because with the exception of where it's coming from, uh, the, that should have been the narrative theoretically. Right. If we had a totally impartial, uh, reactive media, then Pritzker was literally threatening to deny the teaching of black. History right. <laughs> right. Exactly. For political reason. Um, but there, no, there's been no update on that. Like one expects no update on that. I think it was one of the cases where he just wanted to pop up in the news cycle, pretend like he, you know, was nationally relevant to the conversation. And then, uh, I have no reason to believe that he is going to follow through on it. Now that black queer studies is an optional unit that students can do as part of an end of year project rather than a, you know, a mandated component for the curriculum proper. You know, some conservative commentator really should have done a whole snarky segment on this, though, right? Is, you know, far left governor who is the governor of the land of Lincoln is trying to is trying to write out black history. He's trying to write out the Lincoln Douglas debates. I don't know. It's, the idea kind of popped into my head, although it's a little too late, I think, for that column to be written, unfortunately. Um, Max, let's transition a little bit from the K through 12 arena to the higher education arena where Florida also has been um, among the states, perhaps kind of the single red state that is really kind of pushing the envelope as well. And, you know, it's hard not to talk about what's going on at New College of Florida, I think in particular, and kind of this idea, the broader thematic idea here, which I think you said earlier, you, you know, and you and I are in strong agreement on this, is it seems to me like the American right is rediscovering how to actually do politics. It is kind of, you know, reestablishing the, the very sinews, the, the muscles that go in to actually sculpting and crafting a, a politics as opposed to kind of the, the old kind of dead consensus status quo ante, which is very much kind of a politics of depolitics. And the Florida model, when it comes to new college, kind of putting in all the all the various kind of right of center members there on the board of trustees, new president trying to make this the the Hillsdale of the South is kind of the, the line that gets trotted out often there. One is, are you inspired by that as someone who kind of thinks and writes about education a lot? And two is, how easily replicable is that across the country? Because frankly, it seems to me like there's no good reason why this shouldn't be happening in every red state. Yeah, um, I'll have a piece coming out soon, uh, probably published by the time this comes out, where I kind of remind readers that, you know, DeSantis is being attacked for what he's doing in New College and what he's kind of doing to the Florida higher education system in general as being, uh, you know, anti-academic freedom, right? Uh, and the folks who make that attack from the right, at least, seem to forget that the conservative intellectual movement was actually founded upon right. an attack on, on academic freedom. Got a man right? at Yale. Yeah, the subtitle of which was the superstitions of, acad of, of right. academic freedom. And Buckley's Buckley's argument was that not he wasn't against academic freedom because he didn't like free inquiry or because he didn't like rigorous debate, but because he didn't think it 
could actually exist as a concept, that pure value neutrality was untenable, and that in practice, it would only be used as a fig leaf or as a ruse to cover the transition of the ethos of a university from a kind of Judeo-Christian capitalist one to an atheistic collectivist one. And time seems to have broadly proven <laughs> Buckley correct, right? I mean, very few people look at the universities as politically neutral actors anymore. In fact, there's a kind of a formalization of the politicization of the professoriate that's been occurring in the past five years under the guise of diversity, equity, inclusion statements, right? To be a professor uh, in a lot of places, and at least about a fifth of postings, according to a report we published a couple of years ago, and that's probably grown, uh, you're not just evaluated on your contributions to the field and your potential for future scholarship. You're evaluated on your, your adherence to left-wing ideology, your history of activism, even if you're in the STEM fields, right? So you're starting to see the professoriate really coalesce around, you know, an ideology first, academic freedom second uh, system, just as Buckley suspected that they one day would. Uh, but what's what's nice, what's inspiring, as you said, is that the state of Florida, you know, acting kind of as the trustees of Yale, the analog to it, are, are actually responding to it. They're not simply allowing it to happen. They're for the first time really saying, no, we, we subsidize the, these colleges, they're taxpayer funded institutions. We want them to accomplish aims that the taxpayers want. And that aim is not uh, to be kind of colonized by an ideology that's hostile to the American founding and to the most of the principles of parents, but to actually, uh, you know, to some degree transmit uh, thought and values to the next generation. You kind of see this through uh, what DeSantis is doing or what the Florida legislature is proposing for the Florida system writ large, which is, you know, a set of core courses that actually teach some of the underpinnings of Western philosophy that teach the Bill of Rights, teach the Constitution, teach the Federalist Papers. These aren't like partisan things. I think right. Democrat or Republican parents want their children to know, but they are values laden things, right? It does. It is a reflection of your values to say that there are some things that all students should know. And we're seeing the exact opposite of that. In states like New York, where the, the SUNY system is kind of requiring a social justice credit as part of their graduation requirements. So I think we're starting to see kind of the illusion of a politics-free system of higher education crash down. And Florida has been the first state, but I suspect not will not be the last, to step forward and in a way that I think will actually fit the median voter, not just the median Republican say we want our institutions to not be explicitly partisan, to not be explicitly identified with one far left ideology and to ba basically reflect and transmit what we do share together. Right. So that's a very important point you made. It, you know, it's not like Florida is trying to turn New College of Florida into like a far right, you know, bastion of crypto fascism. On the contrary, when we kind of use this this rhetoric of Hillsdale of the South, all we mean is civics, a gr perhaps a great books education. And, you know, I don't think it's overstating it to say that that is itself in the eyes of many far left activists, not necessarily your median left of center voter, but at least in the eyes of many far left activists. Maybe a great book's education is crypto fascism because it was written by a bunch of old white men. Who, you know, I mean, you know how this rhetoric goes, obviously. But this is easily replicable across the country, isn't it? I mean, is there a good reason? And this is part of the whole interesting thing about Florida in general. So just a kind of a quick aside there. You know, I remember... Uh, Lila Rose, the uh, uh, the woman who founded Live Action, the pro-life organization, she graciously invited me to speak out in Jackson Hole, Wyoming last August at kind of a post-Dobbs kind of pro-life lawmaker summit, basically a what do we do now that Rose been overturned kind of summit. And I was talking with a couple of, um, or at least one now that I recall, uh, Idaho state legislator right next door because we were, we were in Wyoming. 
And I was kind of saying, well, can you do this? Can you do that? And she was like, well, I don't know. We have all these kind of Chamber of Commerce Republicans that don't want to do like more pro-life legislation. And my response to that, and the reason it relates back to our conversation, my response to that was, you're in Idaho. <laughs> you know, you are in like a ruby red state. Have you seen what's going on in Florida, where our governor won by 0.4% in 2018, the state that determined the 2000 presidential election by 530 something votes? So, uh, you know, again, uh, to get back to our question as to how easily replicable kind of the recapturing of higher education model with the new College of Florida thing is, you know, again, if it's happening in Florida, is, is there any good reason as to why this can't be happening in, in most other red states? Uh, there's no good reason, right? I mean, um, I mean, you, you, you keep on mentioning New College. I think what's going on with HB 999, the broader state system reform is equally, if not more important, right? Um, which kind of dismantles the DEI bureaucracy on, on campuses, right. requires a core curriculum, uh, those are things that can and should be done in every red state to, by legislators uh, as soon as kind of the tyranny of DEI as a language manipulation tactic is broken, which in, it is in the process of breaking. I mean, one of the most inspiring things I heard Ron DeSantis say when he was introducing the Stop Woke Act at a press conference was he said equity is a fake word that is a Trojan horse for cultural Marxism. <laughs> and I think that conservatives, Republicans in general have been scared of saying a word against diversity, a word against equity, a word against inclusion. And it was really just a linguistic sleight of hand that has propped this up. And I think that's I think that's crashing down. So that's one not good reason why it might not happen. The other better reason is, you know, we don't really have a deep bench of folks with, you know, profound experience <laughs> in education. Most of the trustees in red states who are appointed to, to oversee universities are campaign donors, are big time lawyers, or maybe doctors uh, who are given these posts because they uh, want the status of it and want, you know, nice tickets to the football games. They're not really given these posts to shake it up. It takes an act of political will by a governor to do what DeSantis is doing and actually get people who know what they're doing into these positions. Unfortunately, there aren't kind of a cadre of those folks who are ready to go at the drop of a hat enough to staff all, all trustee positions in all universities. Uh, but that can be built and that can be kind of socialized. And over the next five to 10 years, that can become the normal expectation in red America. Let's get you out of here with, with, with I think, this final question. I, th I think especially to kind of go back to something that I mentioned earlier, especially in the aftermath of this terrible incident with Judge Kyle Duncan out of Stanford Law School and the DEI dean who took the side of the mob against a federal appellate judge. You know, I think many Americans who perhaps are somewhere in the broad middle of the American political spectrum, I think are starting to kind of wake up to the fact that DEI is potentially a big problem. And it seems to me that it would not be overstating it that when it comes to genuine education and education that is kind of dedicated towards, um, I'm not even sure how many people still have this traditional view of education, but at least it's my view, you know, so you can have an education that is dedicated towards kind of sculpting, you know, public minded citizens who develop sound Republican habits of mind and, you know, who have an interest in kind of transmitting the values in this intergenerational compact that, that we are here in the United States. You can have that or you can have DEI. It seems to me like you probably cannot have both. Is it, is it really that simple? Uh, it really is that simple. I mean, Stanford did not get to that did not get to that incident by mistake. They have the highest ratio of DEI officers to staff of any Ivy League school, any big state school. Uh, this is not a fluke of DEI. This is kind of the, the natural telos of yeah. the movement. Um, and there was even a, 
a pretty revealing and I thought at least honestly written article in the Chronicle of Higher Education a couple of weeks ago, which admitted that DEI and free speech are in conflict, right? Because the DEI mentality is that there are certain groups who are underprivileged, underserved, and they must be protected and they must be psychologically safeguarded. And free speech, free debate messages that go against that that group's sense of alleged safety uh, should properly be subverted or should probably be uh, kind of taken down or not allowed to be aired. Um, it's explicitly against the free exchange of ideas and the premise that's, that is quote unquote harmful. And it has a, an ideological vision. Again, like there is no fundamentally neutral stance in education. It can be what you said, um, a kind of a, a freer system, but one that is oriented towards trying to, in the case of Stanford, uh, produce lawyers who have a certain reverence for the law and a desire to uphold it and refine it in practice, or it can be, uh, as uh, the, the DEI officer said there, an idea that we're actually training the next generation to subvert the set of systems that they're walking into. And I think more and more Americans are realizing, oh, DEI, that, that's, that sounds like it's just a nice thing, that it's a linguistic sleight of hand, that it's a cover for applied critical race theory that they're already at least somewhat familiar with. And over the course of time, I hope that that kind of spell will break. And I think that that spell will break and people will recognize it is one over the other in our system of education. Well, Max Eden, on that note, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So thanks again to Max Eden, who, from my perspective, is one of the most thoughtful, eloquent, and frankly, just brilliant folks who are on our side, just doing the good work. And Max's area, obviously, is education. He is profoundly knowledgeable about that topic. I want to just elaborate on one of Max's late motifs in that conversation, I think, which is definitely one of my recurring themes of my written and oral commentary as well which is just the idea here that values neutrality is an illusion. And I was so happy to hear that Max was, uh, who himself, if I recall, is a, a, is a Yale alum. He cited the lesser known subtitle of William F. Buckley's seminal 1951 book, God and Man at Yale, the subtitle of which casts academic freedom as being a superstition. And, you know, it's interesting that academic freedom you know, much like all sorts of other freedoms, like, you know, free speech, religious liberty. And look, all of these freedoms in the abstract sound quite good. Okay, all, the, all of them in the abstract sound quite good. The problem is that it can very, very easily be used to shield 
deeply, deeply destructive inculcation of horrific ideologies and into really at, at its core to indoctrinate an entire generation of activists dedicated to the ultimate destruction of America itself. I mean, that is really not an exaggeration. That is effectively what William F. Buckley was was warning about in that 1951 book when it came to higher education and the academy in general. And as you heard Max say, it seems like now, wow, 72 years later, I guess, it seems like all of his fears have really kind of come to fruition. So the point here is you have to choose. You have to actually rediscover doing politics, the actual art of politics, of trying to sculpt in a statecraft, statesmanlike fashion, trying to sculpt hearts and minds. And yes, having to choose a side. You know, the listeners of this of, of this show will recall when we had on Governor DeSantis on this show a few weeks ago, I asked him that question in very straight up fashion. I said, Governor, you know, my view of kind of the various policies that you have implemented and that you have led on, if I can kind of summarize the overarching theme here, it is the idea that you have to choose, that not choosing, that there is no values neutral, easy way out. And you can go back and listen to it. He didn't answer in a very crisp yes or no fashion, but I definitely took his answer to be effectively yes, effectively agreeing with the implicit assumption there in the question that you have to actually choose. And, you know, that is one of the broadest messages more generally when it comes to the so-called new right movement is that no matter what it is, whether it's education policy, whether it is trade policy, you know, you think back to our conversation a couple months ago with Steve Cortez when it came to kind of the neoliberal trade consensus. Yes, they were choosing. They were choosing to prioritize, to maximize consumer prices, to maximize consumption, overproduction, over industrial resilience, things like that. Think about constitutional interpretation, another topic that I write and talk about quite a bit as well. The idea here that at least in close calls that you don't have to choose is, is a fallacy. It, it, it is simply misguided. So I was happy to hear Max kind of emphasize that over and over again. But if you're not already following Max Eden, please do go ahead and check out his work. He does fantastic work for the American Enterprise Institute. And also, if you're not already subscribing to this podcast, Heaven Forfend, you need to go ahead and do so. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Please go ahead and click the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, and yes, go ahead and write in your comment. That's how the algorithms work. You guys should know that by now, but if you're not already doing so, please go ahead and do that. And thank you so much again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Max Eden. I'm Josh Hammer. We will see you next time. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. (laughs) It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.